everybody, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today on Attendance Bias, my guest is author Jason Gershany. Jason is the co-author of the book, 100 Things Fish Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. As we discuss in today's episode, Jason's book, which he co-authored with Andy Smith, is an extensive FAQ-style book about fish, giving bite-sized nuggets of information about the band and the fish culture. It kind of acts as an extensive primer for new fans, or just a reference book for seasoned and jaded fans like myself. Jason and I were put in touch through a mutual friend, and when I literally read the book, his book that is, I knew I would be speaking with a person who not only had an extensive knowledge of the fish universe, but also a very deep appreciation for the music and the scene, and that's the kind of guest I love to have on Attendance Bias. Jason chose to discuss Fish's show on August 6, 2017 at Madison Square Garden, which you may recognize as the final show of the historic Baker's Dozen also known as Glazed Night. There was a lot for Jason and I to talk about. We had similar upbringings in New York City, but also we got very emotional during this closing night at the Garden for very different reasons. So let's join Jason Gershany to talk about August 6th, 2017 at Madison Square Garden. Jason, welcome to Attendance Bias. Thank you so much for being here. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Brian. Of course, of course. And I'm very excited to talk to you not only about the book you co-authored, 100 Things Fish Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and of course, to talk about the show that you chose August 6th, 2017 at Madison Square Garden, which we both know and anyone who's listening probably knows was the final show of The Baker's Dozen. You're the first person to choose a show from 2017, and you're the first person to choose a show from the Baker's Dozen. And since it happened, I've just been dying to talk about it and have an in-depth discussion with anyone because I have so much to say, even though you're the guest today. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, let's hear a little bit about your background. So Jason, where are you from originally and where are you from now? So grew up about a half hour north of New York City in a place, Rockland County. So I would go in, you know, as as a kid to the wetlands and Madison Square Garden and just uh, New York was kind of where I grew up, uh, but lived in the burbs as a kid. And now I live out in Portland, Oregon. I've been out west for about 20 years now. Wow. So talking about the wetlands, what were some of the shows you've seen there? Because I used to go when I was in high school to the wetlands and that was when Mo was on their way up and you know, a couple years after Blues Traveler, but a couple years before the Disco Biscuits, kind of that mid-90s second-tier jam bands were really making themselves known. What were some of the memorable shows you remember from that venue? I mean, it was it was countless, like the the dead the dead cover nights. We'd go down there. You know, I would see a lot of Mo shows. I remember Due to Life. I remember Disco Biscuits. I remember, uh, you know, just all kinds of just, I mean, that was the heartbeat of New York City our jam scene and I think we were just so incredibly lucky to be there at the time we were I know for me uh it really did help form a lot of my 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 thoughts on sort of even the political world I mean it was a it was a politically uh progressive place the music and the politics and the environment all kind of came together in this one spot and for anyone listening who either didn't grow up in the New York area or perhaps you're a bit young to have engaged with the wetlands or visited it was, I think, Pete Shapiro's first club, I suppose, or his first music venue that he ran. And it was tiny, right? It was what, maybe 200 people 
like wall to wall at that point, right? I don't really know the capacity. Um, yeah. But it, but it definitely was tiny. There was a downstairs area, which was pretty big as well. So I don't know if they mm-hmm. counted those in the numbers. Uh, but the the dance floor itself was real small. I know I always there and there was the the VW bus was parked inside by the activism area, <laughs> yeah. which is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So for anyone that's been there or is curious about it, I think you can still visit that uh, pretty famous bus. I would always dance over there. That was always my zone. So it was always a little flavor of music and activism kind of came together and the bus. Uh, just because there was always a little more dance space there, and it just happened to be where I found myself most comfortable. I mean, that was that was the spot. Like, if you were looking for the the heartbeat of the New York music scene, that was it. And it was, uh, I mean, I, I I miss that place a lot, but I feel very lucky and blessed to have been able to you know dive in, you know, at the at that time period. Yeah, it was a special time and place, and it is kind of a visceral like you said, the heartbeat of the New York music scene. If you were into that kind of music or on your way into that kind of music, it really was the vein of the whole vibe. So speaking of the whole vibe, how did Fish enter your life? I can think of a couple different ways. I mean, I have like uh, a a pretty vivid memory of sitting in my friend's backyard. Uh, I think we were in high school and he sat me down and I actually remember the exact song. I played me um, the, the, you enjoy myself from Stowe, Vermont 92 with Santana. Yeah, sure. And uh, he's like, I just want you to listen to this and I want you to envision a musical orgasm. <laughs> and, and, you know, like having not sat down, listening to it, you know, just that peak and then everything from there, it just, it made sense. It clicked. Um, my cousin, who's a year younger than me, Lauren, I remember her being big into fish and playing Reba for me, you know, like when we were kids. Um, and I also summer camp, you know, part of that Northeast summer camp vibe. I do remember people playing different things and sort of just absorbing it as it came. So I'd say some sort of mix of all of those things came together. Um, and really just that kind of, you know, launched me in this direction. And most of that was in high school, you would guess? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was definitely, you know, a big Grateful Dead tour guy in those early sort of, you know, freedom years when I was first able to go and hit the road, mm-hmm. uh, teenager. And, um, you know, my first fish show was in 93 and then 94 is really when I started kind of getting it a lot more. And then it was just sort of on from there, but I did see as many Grateful Dead shows as I could. And that was kind of a, a mix of the two worlds blending together. So sure. where was that first show in 93? Uh, Orange County Fairgrounds. So just north of Rockland County is Orange County. Um, if anybody's been to the Woodbury Commons, you've driven yep. through, or Hireman yep. State Park. And it was just like a dusty a dusty uh, county fairgrounds, and it was the Horde Tour. Um, and, you know, I remember a neighbor of mine just got a group of folks together, rode up there. It was uh, Fish, Widespread Panic, Blues Traveler, Colonel Bruce. You know, I was just there for all of it. I mean, it was all just even just going to live music and that sort of experience with a group of friends was new to me. Um, Fish headlined and came on at midnight um, and started oh, wow. things off with a 2001 split open and melt. And like, you know, they just they literally, you know, literally walked on stage at midnight or around midnight and then bam, 2001 split open and melt. So uh, that was definitely one of those life changing nights for a lot of reasons, opened my eyes to all different kinds of music. Uh, but obviously Fish is the one that kind of <laughs> kept me, kept me going. Around. It yeah. stuck around. But I still, I mean, I love Panic. I still check out Blues Travel. You know, I still, Colonel Bruce is definitely near and dear to my heart. So there's there's still a lot of, uh, you know, musical residue from that moment. But Fish definitely deep in the heart and soul. Do you remember much about what the scene was like different from kind of how it is now? Um, you know, in 94, I do remember much smaller music scene um, where... 
you know, I, I have a vivid memory of one of my favorite shows is uh, from Onondaga by Syracuse in 94, mm-hmm. right after Halloween. And like, we would lift up all the folding chairs and we'd pass them on down to make a little dance space for ourselves. And it was this just small, intimate little scene. And um, it's just, it's been kind of amazing watching it grow from, you know, dusty fairgrounds and small little intimate venues into, you know, giant festivals and, you know, Madison Square Garden, like we're going to talk about. I mean, the musical yeah. center of, you know, at least as far as the performing stage world, um, it's been, it's a, been amazing to watch their growth and just how far they've come. But like the transition from 94 to 95, I remember um, the show, the show that really kind of stuck to me, there's, I went to Palace at Auburn Hills in 95. That was a huge basketball stadium and just seeing fish i think it was maybe 18,000 20,000 people at that point um right before halloween in 95 was just it was startling i couldn't imagine <laughs> just look at all these people at the show now it just kind of has become the norm but yeah um, at granted, that point it was a it was a huge jump and speaking of that huge jump and their development over several years your book co-authored with Andy Smith kind of covers that pretty much from start to finish or start to the present of press time when the book was published. I kind of read it as a compilation of every fish book I've ever read. And I mean that as a compliment because it's so comprehensive and it gives so much information, uh, you know, with more up-to-date information than other books. I'm thinking of The Fish Compendium by Dean Budnick, The Farmer's Almanac, uh, The Fish Book with the interviews of the band, uh, Park Pewterberg's biography, even the Fishnet FAQ. You guys kind of took the best pieces from it without going too deep, but just kind of giving a primer to anybody. It's very digestible and easy for new fans and experienced fans. So I'm wondering... The book is called, again, 100 Things Fish Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. How did the idea of this book and the generation of it start? So the publisher is Triumph Books, and they have a whole series of 100 Things to Know, and it's about every fan base. So there's one about every sports team. There's one about the Beatles. There's one about the Avengers and Star Wars and Game of Thrones. And anytime that there's a diehard fan base, there is a book, 100 Things to Know Before You Die. So this is part of the series. Um, I was contacted by one of the, the folks that work there about uh, putting putting something together. I've been doing music journalism for a while, and it just seemed like a good fit. Um, I was then, okay, I tried to figure out how I was going to pull this off. Uh, you know, I my daughter was born a little bit before that you know, working, working in my normal job. So trying to figure out how I was going to do this. I'm like, I can't take this on my own. And so I reached out to uh, Scotty B, Scott Bernstein, mm-hmm. uh, who is, you know, in the fish scene, people definitely know him from Yen blog and jam base. Um, and he's somebody that, you know, in my early days of touring, I knew him back in like early college days. We had, you know, we'd see shows together and we're friends and just reached out to him. And he put me in touch with Andy who had his own idea for a book where I, you know, initially I was a little more focusing on the history side of things and he was focusing a little bit more on the scene itself. Uh, so it seemed like a really good mix because we kind of wanted to focus on different aspects, but we got together and we basically came up with a, a list of a hundred, we actually probably had a list of 130 and had to trim it on back. Um, and the idea was it, it's supposed to be like you were saying, it's supposed to be digestible. The, it's, it's in our vision, uh, you know, every chapter stands alone. It's not something you need to read right. start to finish you could jump in at any point it's like it's mini essays it is supposed to kind of cover the bases but you know there there have been so many books and that's one of the things that's amazing about the fish scene like this is the scene of where 
almost everyone is an expert on some level. Like there's so much depth of knowledge and so much passion that it's not like we were, you know, reinventing the wheel. We wanted to create something different, um, but something really digestible. The idea that you could put it, you know, put it on the back of your, your toilet five minutes later when you go in, do your business, you, you read a thing, it brought that's you back, minus. it brought that joy. Uh, yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's kind of the idea. We also, um, you know, like the, the, the companion is such a, you know, such a deep, detailed, almost like biblical proportion, yeah. deep it's dive a, into fish that we weren't looking to compete with that. Yeah, we weren't looking to, to, to replicate that at all. We just figured we would create something. Maybe if you were relatively new to the scene and all of a sudden you, you caught on. It caught on to you, but you wanted to know more. A more, just a, a simple sort of digestible way to kind of dive in. Oh, I heard about that 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 game henge thing. Or what, what's they talk about with that type one versus type two? You know, like you'll hear these fish statements and these these common phrases in our culture that you might want to dive deeper into and so our our idea was just to create something that was easily digestible hundred like isolated chunks that you could look at at any given time and that even if you are you know a longtime fan you would get something out of it yeah i felt similar similarly and something i really liked about what you and andy did was all this information is freely available online. And it's almost gotten to a point, in my opinion, where there's almost too much information online to the point where a new fan almost gets paralyzed, where they don't know where to begin. And this book really does center things. And I think it's a benefit to the scene in that way. Thank you. And, and, that's, and that's really what we were going for. I mean, as I was saying, we had about 130 topics. And we kind of had to figure out, you know, are we going to want to have a chapter for every New Year's prank? Or do we want to group them? Do we want to have one for each festival? Because right there, if we did every prank in every festival, you know, that's about 20 chapters gone. Yeah. So we kind of had to figure out how to approach what are the 100 key things to know. Um, how do you organize that? You know, like I'd say at the beginning of the book, we really did try to focus on the most important information. And then we divvied them up and kind of wrote them on our own. So, we, you know, we have different chapters. Uh, like I said earlier, he really wanted to focus a lot on kind of the community, the scene, the lot scene, and I wanted the history. And we obviously went, we crossed those lines. It wasn't that we were isolated on those subjects, but um, it allowed us to kind of divvy up what we really wanted to focus on and then kind of wrote, write our own little, you know, our own little chapters on each one. And then we shared and we kind of helped, gave each other feedback. But you could hopefully hear both of our voices distinctly in here because it is meant to be, you know, different chapters, different writer. Fish began 2017 with three shows at Barcelo Maya in Mexico. And then ahead of the Baker's Dozen, they played three nights at Northerly Island in Chicago, a show in Dayton, one in Pittsburgh, and then the Dozen. Uh, after the Baker's Dozen, they played Dick's for the traditional Labor Day weekend, and then they just returned back to Madison Square Garden for the four nights at MSG. I believe the press release was their long-awaited return to Madison Square Garden. Uh, but... For all intents and purposes, 2017 is the Baker's Dozen, right? I mean, it kind of blots out the sun when you talk about that year and fish. It was, it was uh, an achievement that really, uh, rivaled only by Big Cypress, was probably one of the two greatest things that they've ever achieved. And I, you know, I look at like Cypress as sort of the uh, Herculean, singular, dusk to dawn, like the, the, the strength, the fortitude to get through that singular event has been unsurpassed. And then almost, you know, 20 years later, 17 years later, 
instead of trying to do something like that in a singular time, doing it over the course of multiple weeks and not repeating any. And it was just sort of um, really just this moment in time where Fish was, you know, the, the musical worlds, their eyes were on Fish. I mean, Metallica was talking about Fish. Yeah. So um, it's hard to talk about all the other things that were going on because this was historic beyond just the Fish scene. The music world took note and obviously and it was a moment of pride on so many levels for them, for us. I mean, it was Fish Day. Like literally what we were talking right. about today was New York City declared fish day. Um, so, so yeah, it makes sense that 2017 was the Baker's Dozen. Yeah, it, you're it right. earned it. And it just, you know, I, I wound up going to the final eight. So that was what wound up happening. And again, my wife was so kind to allow me to do that. Sure. Um, but, but yeah, no, they're just, the wheels were turning and I just, you know, collaborating with everyone. How are we getting tickets? Who's approaching what? And the, the ticket situation was really interesting because initially tickets were really easy. Yeah, um, and I think, I think it was, it was the jam night. All of a sudden, the jam night happened. Word got out that history was happening, that the band was, you know, really pushing, pushing it on all cylinders. And tickets went from being, I know, friends who just got free tickets or, you know, traded for like a sticker to being, I, friends were getting shut out and like $300 yeah. being asked on the lot. Like it was, it was crazy how that all shifted. And people were really trying to get in. I know people that just dropped everything and flew out having, having no plans or were like, I need to see something here. Um, it was just interesting to see how that all shifted and what, like, you know, a couple concerts that specifically started with a jam night, all of a sudden all, all eyes were on the garden. Yeah. I remember that was the turning point because I remember getting on the train after the show, I'd go straight downstairs to Penn station, find the train, hop right on it. And I would be on my phone immediately because by the time the train took off to go home, they would announce the theme for the next night or the next show. And that Sunday, I, I don't remember which one it was, but it was after my first show was the, um, was the red velvet night. And then I think the jam night was the next Tuesday, the following Tuesday. I think it was on Tuesday. Okay. I don't know if it was the next Tuesday, but I believe, I believe right. it was. And when I saw Jam Night and I said to myself, thank God I have tickets to this already. Because I knew when Fish says explicitly that they're going to jam, that demands attention. And after that, you're 100% right. It turned everything on its head. Yeah, I mean, they had, they had Jimmy Night and everyone's like, all right, we're getting a harpoon. Like, when do we get that broadcast? Right. You know, like people, <laughs> like, you got a heads up. You never get a heads up, but we did right. hear. Um, and a few, just a few random scattered thoughts about the Baker's Dozen, and then we'll move on to this show specifically. Um, I thought, I agree with you, that it's kind of the career-defining event up to that point. Uh, I thought, I agree, it's on par with Big Cypress in almost every way, but just in a different avenue. I kind of agree with you there. Um, I saw Big Cypress as kind of like a three-hour Martin Scorsese movie, but this, the Baker's Dozen, was like a Ken Burns documentary. It was like... <laughs> You know, multiple hours, several parts. You get to approach it from every angle. It could be serious. It could be entertaining. It's their whole career summed up in yeah, one depth. event. Yeah, depth. lots of depth. So set one opens with Dog Stole Things. And when I was listening on this recording on fish.in, I realized, you know, we went crazy when the lights went down, but the whole audience is quiet. You could hear a pin drop right before they play dog stole things and i realized how relaxed we were at that point i see this show is like almost like a uh, a ticker tape parade for a championship or a victory <laughs> lap or like it was just every every single moment every pause in a song was a celebration of what they achieved and they weren't even done achieving it 
but we were in this sort of like just this i mean high fives hugs um you could see it on their faces you could see it on our face i mean it was just it was incredible and the reason i chose this show wasn't that it was my favorite um of the baker's dozen if i was going strictly by music i probably for myself i love the double chocolate i think that mm-hmm. was my favorite night um attendance by his being honest, I was at that one. It might have been jam if I was at that one, but I went that's to the last day. That's what the show is for, man. Exactly. So that's why I'm admitting to, you know, but I, I would have gone if I was strictly music, but from an emotional standpoint, this was our championship banner being raised to the rafters. And it really was. Quite I mean, literally. It literally happened. So after Dogs Stole Things, Dogs Stole Things was Rift, which upon re-listen is a little off. Uh, it didn't quite hit everything. And then the follow-up of Ha 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 also was pretty botched. But at this point, it was like you said, it was like a victory lap. You know, it's like if they blow ha ha ha, you know, we're laughing, we're not booing and we're not rolling our eyes. You know, it was really, it was just everyone was in for the whole time. And then Camel Walk is when I sat up and took notice where it's so calm and funky and relaxed. It was just patient. Yeah, very patient. And go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say there's parts where Fishman especially, he's hitting his snares. on. It's almost become stop-start during the song where it never usually is, but it still feels like the whole band is prepared for it. It's like they are not just improvising, but they really are one unit playing something that we've heard all before and has been played hundreds of times before, but it still feels new. sync and and it might not have been you know it really is about the the improv and the jams and sort of that that in between notes uh, i mean like you said the riff and the ha 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 definitely there were some stumbling points from the composed sections right but when we got into the points where they could just play music together after having the, these 13 nights together it was it was like one mind i mean there was there was no hesitation anytime a jam launched they could they could do anything they wanted to um and the camel walk really i agree i think that's kind of the show took a little turn right there um and personally i do love the fish funk give me the cow funk so yeah um it you know like i think we all just kind of got a little looser too but yeah it was that was that was definitely where the set sort of i I felt like kind of got its its feet under it a little bit more yeah i agree with you and i was grooving on my couch re-listening to the show <laughs> during camel walk i didn't even realize it but i was moving my shoulders which is the most i usually dance anyway uh the next song is really what in my opinion took things into overdrive it was the first time that i really got my eyebrows raised which was crazy sometimes which is a not a um a song that's played very frequently and there are parts of it song wise and structure wise that i think needs to be a little sharpened but once that jam gets going i mean holy crap this is really something to take notice of 
and Paige just like kind of, I mean, it's just, there's just like this funky groove that he gets into and it's spooky. Like it's, it, it's a perfect Mike Gordon song. You could just, I mean, I feel like it just represents sort of like if you go to a Mike Gordon concert, what you could kind of expect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, a song that kind of feels that way. It is crazy sometimes. And then all of a sudden there's just, it shifts from this kind of spooky feel to a funky feel and back again around. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, super patient. I mean, it was just, they they take their time and once they're in that that groove it just it, it goes wherever it needs to go and they were in no rush and i think the bakers does just in general was there was no rush because they knew they had all the time in the world yeah and i got that vibe at the first show that i saw the red velvet when they came on to open and fishman had the bishop's outfit on and <laughs> to play um the velvet underground song Sunday morning and they were kind of just grinning at each other and kind of nodding at each other when they came on and i could remember thinking this is what a residency feels like. It's not a run. It's not a stand. It's a whole, like they are the residents of the venue. Like they own it in a sense. And crazy sometimes has that not laid back vibe, but like you said, a very comfortable vibe. And one theme that crazy sometimes kicked off was Paige's use of his synthesizer mm-hmm. that I thought brought their whole sound to another level. It happened multiple times this night. I feel like he kept going back to that, and it just, it just, it just drove what we were hearing. Yeah, it's new for fairly new for Fish, and it suits them very well. Um, after that was I saw it again, which the crowd loves, right? It's a crowd favorite. Yeah, and another, it, it goes into that spooky weird thing. I think you know the the these three songs that we're t- they're about to talk about, crazy sometimes saw it again and the sanity that's about to come. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a really interesting trio in the middle of the first set, you know, thinking about, I'm just trying to picture, you know, brand new fan first show, walk it in and you get yourself a sanity <laughs> or you get yourself a saw it again. And Fishman screaming in the back. It's just kind of in a, like the fact that they could just roll through these and just create this pocket of, spooky weirdness and just roll out of it you know they started with the funk with the camel walk into the weirdness and then following these comes bouncing it's like this they could do whatever they want but i found that those three songs somehow fit really well together uh so like you mentioned bouncing around the room follows it up it's still a lovely song um and i remember thinking that it's always overplayed but it isn't i looked up some stats it's only played about five times a year or so in the last couple of years bouncing around the room for someone like you, who's been seeing them since 93, that's like a huge difference. I, I, and I think it's, you know, just the fact that songs like Rift and Bouncing were 13 songs into this run of no repeats before they were utilized yeah. just goes to the depth of the catalog. Like these are staples of the staples. I mean, these are songs that, that have been with this band for so long and to not see it to the 13th show not even be i mean we didn't even know if we would see it so it's interesting it is interesting to see that uh bouncing is not as much a guarantee as it once was Uh, i did think it was interesting 
after all that weirdness, the sanity with little sought again quotes in it. It's just, you know, and now we're going to go little, you know, a little harmony with the bouncing around the room, the, the single law. And it was just, it, was, it fit perfectly. Yeah. And how you brought up that it's 13 shows in, how many bands would have to be digging so deep into their B sides or D sides or unreleased, like songs that you've never heard before. And Fish, it's like, oh yeah, the biggest song we had that we probably played 25 times a year um, in 1994. Now you might or might not hear it. It really I mean, speaks it might, to them. It might be one of the songs. I mean, when we talk about the spread of people following and finding Fish, for those early years, Bouncing probably was the song that got a lot of people first yeah. hooked in the band. Yeah, and then they followed that up with a debut. Again, 13 songs in, uh, now here's one you've never heard live before from us, right? It was a Vita Blues song. Most events aren't planned. This is my favorite performance of the first set, just from a musical standpoint, especially. I like that it gives Paige the spotlight big time. And it was just, the groove is so sick. Fishman hitting that hi-hat. And I think it's, uh, I think it's Gordon's bass just, that little rumble that's just repetitive over and over again, almost in the same way that sand or first tube would be with just a bass and drums kind of set up pages, sweet vocals. And then all of a sudden, and I think it's about four and a half minutes in, it just picks up and they go into overdrive. It's, it's, it's amazing to think that a band, the first time they play a song live, could hit, hit that gear as seamlessly and as comfortably as they did. Because, I mean, you know, I, I saw Vita Blue once. Maybe I saw this lot. I don't, I don't know that I did, but it, was, yeah. it felt like a new tune to me. You know, I, it wasn't something that I was readily pulling out of the memory banks. And it just felt like pure fish. Like, and it was, I mean, from a jamming standpoint, from all four of them on stage together, it definitely was the highlight of the first set. I have my own personal highlight coming up that I'm going to talk about yep. a little bit, but as far as musically... Um, and as far as them as a, you know, a, a four piece, this was, this was the big jam of the set for sure. I mean, just in general seeing, you know, uh, it, in recent years, Mike has really been bringing forward a lot more of his material that's been making it in the rounds. And it's nice seeing Paige doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think I just appreciate the fact that I, I like seeing them having the side projects and then bringing in the things that they play around with there into the fish world. Um, and so just seeing, you know, Paige doing that, I thought was just was terrific yeah especially when it's as successful as this after yes. that is bug and i've been around which are both fine songs um just standard first set songs and then what was one of your most emotional times of the set tell us a little bit about isabella 
So um, I could tell you, uh, I'll tell you a lot of things about Isabella. Please, so for me, um, I, this is the song I most wanted to hear during the Baker's Dozen. Uh, it's my daughter's name. Uh, the, during the Baker's Dozen was my 200th show. And anyone that was listening at any given time, when, when I was celebrating that, leading up to the show, at the show, all I was saying, I just, I just want to throw it out there to the world. Isabella, just that's all I want. That's all I need. Um, and it just was something that I didn't know that I would hear again. I was at the MSG show in 97, 12, 30, 97, when they played mm -hmm. it. Uh, and I hadn't heard it since. I know they hadn't played it since 98. But for me, it had been, you know, a full 20 years. Um, my daughter is named Isabella with a Z, not the S, just to make sure we're all clear. The Isabella <laughs> has the Z. For those and, who um, birthday I, cards, make sure you spell it. Yeah, right. no, just it's Z Isabella. You know, that's and um where I was standing, um, you know, like I saw I saw I've been around end and Trey picked up a different guitar and it didn't register to me anything was specifically happening. When he kicked into the riff, I have never had an outpouring of emotion and tears of joy like I had at that moment. I mean, it was it was nonstop. It was it was all over my face. And I was just so incredibly happy and overwhelmed with joy. Um, it's a moment I'm never going to forget for my life. And what is actually the reason, one of the reasons why I chose this show was thinking that after the show, I, I was in this spot kind of behind the stage and there was a couple, maybe two rows in front of me. They turned around. I was so happy. I just had to give them a hug and tell them. They then turn around and tell me, well, the day before, Fish played Joy, which is their daughter's name, and that's the first time they've heard it. And they had the exact same reaction that I had yesterday, and we just had this group hug, and it was like, this is Fish Magic. I mean, we all have our, you know, our own personal stories of where those, that, those magical moments happen that it's like, how does, how does the universe hear this? How, does, how did this happen? Um, but just at that moment, at that space, it was, it was that space for me and them. And it was just such an incredible thing that I will never forget it. And I still try to relate to my daughter and explain it to her and I'll play it for her. And I'm like, this is your song. One day she'll get it. Maybe. Yeah. But I just, you know, she's like, what do you mean you were crying? I'm like, I'm just telling you just, just joy, just pure joy. Um, and it was just, and it was, I mean, musically, I mean, it was just on fire. I mean, the yeah, energy in that place, the place erupted. Um, it's been something that fans in general have just been just wanting to hear, uh, near the top of the list. And there was a lot of Hendrix played over the course of the 13. So I thought, I thought there wasn't a chance at this point. I was like, man, eh, they've, you know, they've honored all different kinds of musicians throughout the 13. I, I thought maybe there was, you know, it just wouldn't happen, but that's okay. And this just, it caught me off guard and blew me away. And just one of probably the greatest musical moments of my life. So when set two began, it became kind of a game of what's left. You know, we were down to the final frame. It was where 13, 12 and a half shows in, they've played so much, but those of us who are stat heads or get really into setless games, what are the most common that haven't been played? And I think you enjoy myself stood out and it will come in a little bit, but this was a fairly short set in terms of numbers of songs because of the opener because of this monster simple that ate up so much time and it was so quality that almost in real time, you could feel the vibe that people were understanding. This is the Baker's dozen simple capital B capital D capital S that it's now kind of assumed this stature seconds after they stopped playing it. There was, there were so many layers to that simple and so many sections. And just, as you said, it's just so quality. It was, 
just such a standout version. And I feel like anytime they play simple in Madison Square Garden, it just makes all the sense in the world. I mean, we are in a skyscraper. We're, <laughs> right. I remember, I, I don't know if we're five or seven floors off the ground, but for anyone that's not been there, we are off the ground. The venue is not on ground level. So we're in a skyscraper and maybe not scraping the sky, at least in New York terms, but for where I live in Portland, it would be a skyscraper. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, you know, like it's, as far as a, a song and a place and a time, it just made so much sense. And just the, the jam itself, you know, simple is one of those songs for me, you know, I never necessarily go crazy when they start it, but so often when they end it, I'm just so blown away of where they came because it is such a flexible song. And so I always feel there's just certain songs like that where I'm like, huh, let's see what they do. And I just wind up being completely floored by, uh, just how dynamic a song it is and how flexible it is for whatever they're feeling. And that simple, I mean, it's 25 and a half minutes. It was kind of like, a, as it ended, you know, we all kind of looked around at each other <laughs> like, all right, we need, we all need to regroup. The band needs to, we all just need a second to kind of take a breath here because that was just its own musical journey and just so deep. Yeah, and there's so much within it. It's like Cubist, almost. It's like you look at it from one angle and then there's something new to discover where it's around eight and a half minutes. It starts to get space funky. And then Paige brings the synth back about a minute later. They fall into a groove at 11 minutes that I wish they could stay in forever. goodness is what I wrote in my notes. Repetitive yep. goodness. Uh, I wrote pages on his synthesizer or maybe his theremin. Fish.net notes that he was on a theremin, but my ears can't really tell I the think difference. That's, I, wa- I watched the video uh, just in prepping for this because there's mm-hmm. a really quality video that Fish put up. And I think it's the theremin at the end. I don't know if at that okay. moment it was. I think as they kind of fade out, he uses the theremin. Um, and I, I thought, it was, and I don't know if we're talking about the same time, but there's okay. kind of almost an under pressure groove. Like, and I think maybe that might be right around that same time that you were kind of describing where it's just, mm-hmm. just this rolling funky, just the pocket. I mean, they were just in the pocket and you know, we swore away. And then toward the end of it, well, third, I'll say the three fourths, three quarters of the way into it are in 18 minutes. You could feel it moving toward a peak. Like I think mm-hmm. Trey is mostly directing it.
to me, it was almost like they were saying, we're all so deep into this event. Like we're, we've been here. We're so deep into it. We're neck high into the Baker's dozen, but we're just going to kill it one more time to make sure we all remember this. And, like, and I think this was the glaze. You know, there yeah, wasn't any yeah. overt glaze reference, but I think this was it. We are going to glaze you with this jam. Your your eyes are going to roll back, and you're all going to be just completely floored by by the glaze that we're giving you. We're done. You're done. That's it. Yeah. Everything yeah. else is everything else is candy. If you and if you do watch the jam again, you'll see Kuroda's lights just with the peak. It's just an explosion of energy, and because this is the victory lap of the Baker's Dozen. It wasn't yeah. just the moment of the music, which was so incredible. It was the achievement of a lifetime. But it was just, it was all in one. And, um, you know, here with the simple, you could feel it. And a couple other times during the set in the encore, you could feel it. Like this was a celebration beyond the moment. And the simple jam really stood out as just one of these. I mean, it is, it is a capstone. I mean, I think that's completely accurate. And the follow-up was Rise Come Together, which I think was a needed breather. I think everyone went to the bathroom during this, and that's not necessarily a statement of the song. Just, it's almost a thankless task, whatever song it was, to follow up that simple. It was almost like, you know, that's what we need right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe we didn't know it at the time, but we definitely need it right now. So um, I, I, I was happy that it was there. It also, you know, I don't think they could have come back with another huge jam at that moment. Yeah, you know, they they kind of had to give us a little bit of a a deglazing before kind of taking back off the ebb and flow of the set, and then more flow where they played Starman by David Bowie, which was the only time that they played it outside of the Ziggy Stardust set. Uh, it, to me, I love whenever they play any Bowie. This uh, Life on Mars, they're so good at covering him, and it was just I can't think of a more perfect line to kick off a chorus or to end a chorus in this case is like the children boogie at a I fish mean, show. There we were. Yeah. H hazy cosmic jive. I mean, this is, it was just, it was perfect. It was beautiful. Again, a reset on everything before sort of the final launch for the, for the end of the night and the end of the run. Um, and it's just such a classic song that, you know, even if you were, you know, at your first show, you were, you were fully brought into that moment. It just, it, it, it was, it was a tearjerker for a lot of yeah. people. It's hard not to like, and then yeah. to what I thought was going to close the set was what had to happen. It almost felt like it was inevitable was you enjoy myself, right? It was, it's the fish song and there was a huge crowd cheer when they opened it and they were just putting their stamp on Madison square garden. And again, it's beyond just that show. It is a celebration of what had just been achieved 30 plus years. You could almost hear it in, in the recordings. It's just how much love was being sent to the band and they felt it. I mean, it was, and you could hear it in the encore later. I mean, the band was tearing up during the parts of this show as well. So, um, but that, that yam and the buildup and just the energy with the crowd was just something that, you, you don't always get, not that crowds aren't excited for Yem, they always are, but this, there was more being cheered about here than just the Yem itself. And there is more at the end of this, you enjoy myself, than what's usually there, because I don't usually care for the vocal jam very much, but they were teasing other songs that were played earlier in the run. So I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure someone was singing everything in a right place. You know, the Radiohead song, someone was mm -hmm. doing the lizards uh, chorus or the coda at the end. And there was another one or two. And it's like, we again, got another Isabella. I can Isabella, tell you, we that's right. which for me again, I, 
I couldn't have been happier. That's right. It didn't <laughs> happen. Keep it, keep it coming. Right. It didn't happen uh, for 20 think, years and now it's happening twice in a night. Yeah. I think in, in, in realistically, I think Mike kind of started it on the bass, and then you could hear kind of Trey pick it up a little bit afterwards and then they went into it. I mean, it's just, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, the 97, the 1230-97 Sneak and Sally, where it was like, if you didn't catch the opener Sneak and Sally for the bust out, here it is again in the encore, just in yeah. case you missed it. And to wrap it up, I was 100% sure that You Enjoy Myself was going to close the set. It, just from an artistic perspective, I thought it made sense, but they're not done yet. They play Loving Cup, which is like a raucous version. And like, what did you think? Were you exhausted by this point? Uh, I don't know that I was exhausted. I think I was shocked, though, also. Um, yeah, I think I was exhausted afterwards. I don't know that I was exhausted at the moment. But um, it's also just such a – I mean, it's usually an encore or set closer, more encore than set closer, but usually is sort of that capstone. And, and there was so much honoring of the bands, the influences, that I, I could see how it would fit in. And I remember the break before the encore being a little bit longer than usual. Mm -hmm. uh, we were waiting for a while, you know, everyone was so thrilled. And then when they came back on, it made a lot of sense. Why? Because the, uh, the staff was, or the crew was setting up that banner to be raised and it took a while for them to do it. And once I think we all realized what was happening, you know, we didn't, I thought it was just going to be a photo op, like the band in front of it. But then when I saw it dangling from those ropes um, in front of the stage, it was like the impossible made possible. Like this band that couldn't sell out a bar outside of Burlington in 1990 now still does have their name hanging at the top of trademark, the world's most famous arena. And it, it's, that's it's when I got emotional. I mean, it is for, for them to have pulled off what they pulled off and to be honored in the way that they were. Um, it, it, I mean, I can't speak for them, but between the raising of the banner and the proclamation by the, the mayor of New York City that this day was fish day officially, um, I mean, it just was such an incredible feat that um, I, it, it just, you know, brings just an emotional feel. I mean, it's just, I don't know how you can't just be proud of what these guys have accomplished and to do it at Madison square garden. I mean, I've thought about this for a while. Like it's, it's been amazing to me how this band that not everyone in, in, you know, the general public is very familiar with, but if you live in New York, how do you not notice that the same band plays Madison square garden on new year's every night? Or, you know, like you'd figure at some point you'd be like, 
how does this band that I barely know or I've only heard of in passing get this coveted slot? And it's just the years of the grind and the playing and the growing. And um, it's just such an incredible feat. And, and the banner itself was just, you could see it on their faces. I'm glad you brought it back to that because my father worked with the Madison Square Garden Network. Uh, he was very fortunate, and I was, as a result of getting a lot of tickets to games in the Skybox, which is mm-hmm. like the, you know, the luxury box is up high up at Madison Square Garden. And it's up high, but you are right on site level with all of the banners. So when we were up there as a little kid, like eight or nine or 10 years old, I would try to memorize the names and you know how which years the Knicks won the Atlantic Division and the Rangers won this. And so like I felt literally physically close to the banners, but also it was one of those things like it feels personal to me. And then they played the only song that could have been played, but it was not obvious to me. And I don't know anyone who could have called it was Willie Nelson's on the road again. Yeah, that was, that came out of nowhere, but it, it, I mean, I felt like it was the band just telling us how good things were amongst them. Like playing, there's just nothing better than playing music with my friends that I love. I mean, that's, you know, and they're getting choked up. There couldn't have been a more appropriate song for them. Just sort of like, Hey, everyone, we love each other. We love you. Look at what we've all done together. And the joy that we have when we do this is, is real. It's not, a, it's not an act. It's not, you know, they could have played anything, but they wanted to make sure that that message that we are best of friends. Here we are. Can't wait to do it again. And not to be ignored the line where they sing, insisting that the world keeps spinning our way. They've kind of done that their whole career. You know, in the early nineties, they may have kind of flirted with, you know, being signed by Electra and making, hoist which is kind of a commercial album you know commercially accessible Mm -hmm. and it didn't work and everything they've done they've kind of done on their own terms yeah and there there was also before the tweezer reprise there was a little bit of a week solo because people because people were saying like mike forgot to do the solo i think they transitioned out of the sneak and sally i think it was the holes night out of the sally into the week it was smooth but mike never got his solo so they're like okay we're just gonna we're gonna go back to everything and we're just gonna put a perfect bow on all the loose ends. Um, I thought the uh, the lawn for me missing the actual lawn boy was nice to kind of get a little just just a taste. I got a little taste of the lawn boy, so was, that was really nice. And um, the the reprise. I mean, like, what else could could end this entire run except the sandwich over the course of the thirteen nights? I think the tweezer was the first night. Um, I think so. And it's actually and it, and it actually on the New York uh, Proclamation of Fish Day. It says awaiting the reprise. Like it's on, it's written, yeah, it's written in that official document from New York City. So I don't know how, who is involved in all of that, but I think that that's a pretty amazing thing that like, even New York was in on the gag, like the whole city. (laughs) So Jason, to wrap it all up, uh, thank you so much for being here. I loved talking about this show with you. Obviously, we probably could have gone on for hours more if we really tried to chase down every thread of this conversation. Before we end things here, again, where can we find your book? Uh, you can find it on, online, Amazon. Um, I, it's in bookstores too, you know, if those still exist by you. Uh, the Barnes and Nobles of the world d- does carry it. Uh, but yeah, just go in, go into Amazon and it's readily available and ready, ready to ship. So again, it's 100 Things Fish Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die by Jason Gershony, I'm sorry, and Andy Smith. Any last thoughts, Jason, before we sign off here? 
No, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. I love talking fish, and it was great talking fish with you, Brian. Wow, that was a lot to go over. As you can probably tell, Jason and I had a lot to say and a lot to share about this night. Needless to say, we're both going to remember it for a very long time, and we could have discussed this for hours on end, but we had to end at some point. And before we say goodbye here, though, it's time for the attendance bias fact check. At the beginning of the episode, Jason and I traded stories about the wetlands, and I tried to set the scene for some listeners who may not know about that venue. The Wetlands was a small venue and an activist center located in the Tribeca neighborhood of New York City. It opened in 1989 and closed in 2001. Larry Block opened the venue and Pete Shapiro took over in 1997. The club had a capacity of about 500 people, which was really pushing it during a sold-out show you were elbow-to-elbow. And it hosted some of the greatest bands of its time, including Fish, Moe, Dave Matthews, and several others. If you're interested in learning more about it, there is a very good documentary called The Wetlands Preserved, available on YouTube. Jason mentions that his first fish show was at the Orange County Fairgrounds in 1993. The show date was July 21st, 1993. It was one long set as part of the Horde tour, and it featured a very short 2001 opener, a big ball jam, Purple Rain, and a very interesting Runaway Gym that I would highly recommend you check out. There's an excellent recording of it on fish.in. It's not quite a soundboard, but it sounds pretty darn close. He also mentions the 1994 Fish show at the Onondaga War Memorial Auditorium near Syracuse. That show date was November 4th, 1994, and that was a full two-set show. That show has lots of peaks and favorites, at least my favorites, from that time period, including a very solid David Bowie, which we all know was at its height during 1994, a Colonel Forbins into Mike's Tila Weekapog, and a very offbeat jam in that Weekapog groove. Another stellar dat recording is on fish.in. And finally, one more show that Jason mentioned. The show at Auburn Hills in 1995 was on October 28, 1995, during the band's excessive and fabled 1995 fall tour. Jason mentions that during the Baker's Dozen, Metallica was talking about fish in that the whole music industry was aware of the residency. That is in reference to a short video of Metallica that surfaced during a practice session of theirs in August 2017, They talked about being jammy, quote-unquote jammy, for 30 seconds during one of their songs. They referred to themselves as Fish, very sarcastically. Drummer Lars Ulrich then informs the rest of the band that Fish had just completed a residency called The Baker's Dozen. They all kind of stand in stunned silence when they're told that Fish didn't repeat a song before James Hetfield sarcastically, but at least I detected some admiration. He says, "'Only 13 shows?' So there's some love there from Metallica to Fish, two unlikely sources. Jason and I forgot the order of the Baker's Dozen shows, but it turns out that we were right. The Jam Night show was indeed the next show on a Tuesday after the Red Velvet Night. The Red Velvet show was on Sunday, July 23rd, and Jam Night was on Tuesday, July 25th. Toward the end of the episode, we talk about when Fish played Tweezer during the Baker's Dozen. Jason guessed that it was played on night one, and he was absolutely right. 
And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I would like to thank Jason Gershini for coming on today. His book, co-authored with Andy Smith, is called 100 Things Fish Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It's available on Amazon and any bookstores. I would also like to thank Fish.net and Fish.in for everything they always provide. And if you enjoy Attendance Bias, you can support the show by leaving a rating and a review at your favorite podcast app of choice. If that's too much work, then please just tell one other person about the show. Text them, talk, or any other way. Just spread the word. If you tell one other person, that'd be great enough. And thank you again for listening, and see you next time on Attendance Bias.